The talk this evening is on loving-kindness, tenderness, and connection. The loving-kindness practice brings so many benefits into our lives. It makes life sweeter. It makes it warmer. It makes it more enjoyable. It brings a quality of concentration. It brings greater comfort with ourselves and therefore greater comfort and ease with others reduces the amount of judgment that we bring to ourselves and the judgment we bring to others. The Buddha said that there were 11 benefits of loving-kindness practice. I'm going to read this list slowly so that you can feel them. It says that one who has really developed the heart of loving-kindness will sleep easily, wake easily, and have pleasant dreams. People will love you, Devas and animals will love you, and devas will protect you. Weapons can't harm you. The mind is joyful, your face is serene, you will die peacefully, and when you die, you'll be reborn in a happy destination. Kind of makes it worth it, doesn't it? (laughs) I'd sign up for that. That's a great list. But I want to talk tonight about two benefits that come to us from loving-kindness practice that develop rather slowly. And these are the qualities of tenderness and connection. These qualities grow slowly kind of in the same way that through Vipassana practice, equanimity grows slowly. A lot of experiences come and go in doing our mindfulness practice. A lot of insights come and pass away. And if we look for something that's an enduring result from years of Vipassana practice, one of the things we can definitely point to is a growth in equanimity. The mind is less ruffled by the alternations of pleasure and pain that that meet us. This is something that is a lasting fruit from that practice. Well, with metta, I would say that these qualities of tenderness and connection are also lasting fruits. But like equanimity, they grow slowly. Different experiences in loving-kindness come and go. And these build, I would say, over a long period of time. One of my teachers put it like this. He said, experiences are like clouds, but true realization is like space. So experiences are like clouds in that they're always coming and going, taking different shapes, different forms, here for a little bit, passing on. Realization is like space in that it's always there and it's a little underappreciated at first. But as time goes by, it seems to expand, 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 and we realize that's where our freedom is. So through loving-kindness practice, these qualities of tenderness and connection grow over time like realization in Vipassana practice. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. There is for us in being people a kind of inherent tenderness because we're, um, we're sensitive beings. If you look in the animal world, for example, other creatures don't have this bare skin that's exposed to the four elements. We have horses on the land at Spirit Rock. And it's fun, you know, they're out where yogis can watch them And so a lot of people do because there's not much entertainment when you're a yogi. So people love to walk by and look at the horses. And what you'll find, because we do a long retreat in February when it rains a lot, you'll often see the horses standing outside while the rain is falling down upon their skin, a cold rain. Even though there's a shelter they could move under, they sort of don't bother to do it because their skin is just not as sensitive as ours. But we have very sensitive skins and we also have very sensitive emotions or hearts. So in our practice of loving kindness, we take advantage of this sensitivity. It's built on this quality of sensitivity. And we grow it by examining one another's welfare. The practice of loving kindness is all about um, how are you doing? I hope you're safe. How are you doing? I hope you're happy. How are you? I hope you're healthy. I hope you're at ease. We check this over and over again for ourselves and for others. And in that way, we're kind of constantly connecting our heart to others' hearts. 
the whole practice is about well-being and the, the feeling of that. So this tuning to other people's welfare, tuning to our own welfare, starts to sensitize our hearts even more. It wakes it up, you could say, to the joys and sorrows of living. We feel those joys and sorrows in our own life. We feel them in others' lives. And the Brahma-viharas as a whole are very balanced between joy and sorrow. We tend to emphasize love and compassion a lot in practice, but when we round out the Brahma-viharas, there's love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So metta establishes the caring, compassion turns in, tunes into the suffering, but appreciative joy tunes into the happiness in life, our happiness and others. And all these factors are held within the balance of equanimity. So we're really exploring through the Brahma-viharas how happiness comes, how unhappiness comes. And we don't bias towards suffering or happiness. We open ourselves either to compassion or to, to appreciative joy, depending on what meets us. So we're, in a way, we're working this sensitivity to joy and sorrow all the time with metta. This is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. It is as if we had a pimple on our body that was very sore, so sore that we do not want to rub it or scratch it. During our shower, we do not want to rub too much soap over it because it hurts. That sore spot on our body is an analogy for tenderness. Why? Because even in the midst of aggression, insensitivity, or laziness in our life, we always have a soft spot, some point we can cultivate. A more vivid analogy might be of an open wound which is always there. That open wound is usually very inconvenient and problematic. We would like to be tough. We would like to come on strong. But there will always be a sore spot. At least we are accessible somewhere. So we are not completely covered with a suit of armor all the time. What a relief. So this is the beginning of our practice, this point of sensitivity, this soft spot in our, in our being. And one of the reasons that it's soft and that we're intrinsically tender is because we're vulnerable. As we've said, as human beings, anything can happen to us in a moment. A visit to a doctor can change our lives. A walk on the beach could change one's life. We have a good friend who was taking a spiritual journey to southern India a few years ago and staying at a little bungalow on the beach not far from Madras in south India and went out on the beach on a, on a warm winter morning. It's always warm in Madras. And was doing some movement on the beach, waves coming in, swaying with the gentle tropical breezes. And all of a sudden a big wave came up on the beach. And he thought it looked kind of strange, this wave, especially because when it went back out, it left a huge gulf as it was leaving. And he thought, this is not normal. And it turned out that it was not normal. And this was the date of December 26, 2004. So he was vacationing there with his partner and he saw this weird outgoing wave So he went to get his partner from the bungalow and said, come out, I think something strange is happening. So they hopped up onto a concrete wall that was about four feet high, and there was a palm tree growing there. So he hung on to the palm tree, and his friend hung on to him, and that's when the second wave hit. And that's the wave that was the tsunami of 2004 that killed tens of thousands of people in the southern parts of Asia and Thailand. And the tsunami hit, it came up high, but because he was holding on to the palm tree and they were a little higher and his friend was holding on to him, they were okay. Other people were washed out to sea and never seen again, but he was okay. It was a time when the practice of non-clinging was not advised. (laughs) But by holding on, they were saved. So you never know. You're just out on a beach on a warm morning in December. 
and anything can happen, anything can change. There's a very interesting story of the life of one Tibetan teacher, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. He was born in Old Tibet and did years of retreat practice and became a very uh, recognized uh, Dzogchen master. But fled Tibet after the invasion in 1959, the same year the Dalai Lama fled, and came to India. But things weren't so well established for the Tibetans at that point. In India, they were just starting to come out. And so his life had a lot of unexpected turns when he was living in India. Because he was a, a very recognized master, he was in um, demand as a teacher and as a figurehead. But other times things didn't go that easily for him. So this is his description of his life. Sometimes I gave empowerments to great assemblies of people, including dozens of tulkus and thousands of monks. At other times I was utterly poor, living hand to mouth on the streets in Calcutta, wandering around with my hand out begging for pennies. So many unexpected ups and downs, who can describe them? So life presents us with this really changing array of experiences. How, how do our hearts stay strong enough to be open to those experiences and not crumble? How do we meet all those kinds of changes and stay strong within? And I think this is the gift of the Brahma-viharas. The Brahma-viharas are about strengthening that heart. As we tune in, we see the opportunity for love and compassion everywhere. This is from Bob Dylan's memoir, um, Chronicles. My grandma was filled with nobility and goodness. Told me once that happiness isn't on the road to anywhere, that happiness is the road. Had also instructed me to be kind because everyone you'll ever meet is fighting a hard battle. So when we can approach life from this understanding of the sensitivity that everyone is facing, everyone is vulnerable, and everyone is trying to find their way, it opens us up to a new kind of connection, which sometimes comes through fairly dramatically. There was a story reported in the San Francisco Chronicle a few years ago from uh, December. And the story was about a female whale that was migrating south at that time of year, the female humpback. They migrate from the colder waters up by Alaska down to the warmer waters, and I think they tend to give birth in, in Hawaii. <clears throat> so she was passing by the, the California coast, close to San Francisco, about 10, 15 miles off the coast near these islands, the Farallones. And it was a big whale said she was estimated to weigh 45 to 50 tons. But she happened to be swimming in an area where uh, crab fishermen had set up. And the way crab fishermen set up their, uh, their work is that they have these nylon ropes that they hang with um, crab pots. And the pots are, are quite heavy. And so she had gotten tangled up in a whole bunch of these lines. And a fisherman just happened to have his boat nearby and saw what was happening. Some of the lines had gotten wrapped around her four times. And the crab pots, because they were so heavy, were weighing her down. And each line that she got tangled in with the weight of the pots was about 1,000 pounds. So the fisherman noticed that she was being weighed down by this and was in danger of, of sinking and, and drowning. So she would struggle to come up to get air, but then the weight of the pots would carry her back down. And then she'd struggle up, but she would exhaust herself in going through this. So he got in touch with the Marine Mammal Center, which is in Marin County on the, on the coast. And they sent a boat out. They got a, a group of divers together and sent a boat out to see if they could help. So it took them a couple of hours to get there. She'd been struggling and was getting weaker. And when they came upon her, they looked at the situation and they thought, wow, this is not going to be easy. Because the only way really to save her would be for each of the divers to get in the water 
and cut through the ropes. But when you're near a whale that big, one splash of her tail could, could kill you. So here the divers are, they're safe on the boat. She's drowning in the water. Do we get in and risk our lives? Or do we just say it's too much? So they all jumped in. So each diver took a special knife, a curved knife, and they worked very close to her body, cutting through the ropes that were, that were binding her. There were rope around her back, a, a line that went through her mouth. There was one around her tail and one that caught up her front flipper. She was really totally tangled up. So they said that they worked for about an hour cutting, cutting through right close to, to her body. And one of the divers said that all the time they were doing it, the, the whale just floated very passively in the water. And wouldn't you think if there were four strange people around you, you might get a little freaked out? But it just seemed like she, she trusted them. So she was just floating there very still And the diver said, giving off a strange kind of vibration. So one diver was working right by her face, that line that went through her mouth, and he was working next to her eye. So he was swimming and cutting right next to the whale's eye for quite a while. And this is what he said. When I was cutting the line going through the mouth, her eye was there winking at me, (laughs) watching me, It was an epic moment of my life. Can't even imagine that. So after an hour, they managed to cut all the lines and she was free. When the whale realized she was free, she began swimming around in circles in apparent joy, according to the rescuers. She then swam up to each diver, nuzzled him, and then swam to the next one. Quote, It felt to me like she was thanking us, Knowing that she was free and that we had helped her, one of the divers said, she stopped about a foot away from me, pushed me around a little bit, and had some fun. (laughs) She seemed kind of affectionate, like a dog that's happy to see you. I never felt threatened. It was an amazing, unbelievable experience. So at moments like that, this connection to life, just comes through so dramatically. Can you imagine the human consciousness and the whale consciousness kind of eye to eye like that? And that that meeting, it's it's really beautiful. So this quality of love and compassion can lead to that, that kind of connection. And it's so important because part of our delusion, part of our ignorance is we only see the separateness. We tell ourselves again and again and again that we're different. I'm special. I'm unique. I'm not like everyone else. And we, because we tell this story again and again, we believe it. And it's only at these times of kind of special contact that we can feel how alike we are. So these stories are missing half the point, you know? We are different in ways, but we're also just alike in just as many ways. And so the Brahma-vihara practices, loving kindness and compassion, reconnect us with this quality of a likeness which we tend to forget. Researchers are finding that one of the deepest sources of unhappiness for people is a sense of isolation. And we can look at Western culture and see what's happened over the last couple of hundred years, kind of with the breakdown of the immediate family, the separation of the extended family as people move apart, the loss of community, and so many families living just within their home or apartment and not mingling the way that we all used to. And so in that not mingling, we're losing the sense of the bigger human family that we're a part of. This isolation has a very um, frustrating impact on us because we don't get to, to live as social creatures. And based on that isolation, we tell ourselves more stories about how we're not enough or 
we're, we're not like everybody else. But it's not true. We're connected in many, many deep ways, and that's what, part of what I want to talk about during this talk. So one of the ways that we're connected is this beautiful image from the Avatamsaka Sutra of Mahayana Buddhism called the Jewel Net of Indra. And the picture is, is, a, is a very cosmological kind of sutra. Later, later Buddhist teachings got very cosmological. So this one is the image of the cosmos as a vast net. So you can just imagine a big net that has vertical ropes and horizontal ropes. And at every place the two meet, they're kind of joined by a, a gem, a jewel, which is at the intersection. So there are all different kinds of jewels on this net. And this net is infinite. It stretches across the whole of the cosmos. So there are emeralds and rubies and diamonds and sapphires. And they're, they're all these translucent or transparent gems. So at each intersection, there's a gem. And that represents consciousness. It represents a sentient being. And if you look inside a gem, what it contains is an image of the whole rest of the cosmos. So any jewel that you look at is reflecting all the other jewels and that whole net that ties them together. And that's an analogy for you and me. Each one of us reflects a whole universe of beings and nature and meaning. That's what a human consciousness is. That's what it holds. Each of us reflects the whole, or has within us the whole, just like the gems on the jewel net. So when you start to think about that, are you really separate or isolated from anybody? I mean, right now, in this moment, I'm part of your experience, and you're part of mine. So you're in my consciousness and I'm in yours. So in this way, you know, we're, we're more than connected. We interpenetrate each other. You know, we become each other. So we're connected in that way. Then we're also deeply connected on a heart level. This is a poem from uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, a Palestinian-American poet called uh, Kindness. I'm just going to read a Small section. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. What I love about this poem is the line where she says, you must speak to sorrow till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. The size of the cloth of sorrow is the size of sentient life. Everything that lives knows happiness and suffering. Everything that lives has pain and pleasure. And it's that that connects us. And when we wake up to that, that's the tenderness. That's the reason for kindness to come. You, when you think about these four phrases of metta, they kind of evoke this. We, we like to pick phrases that work for us and for all other beings. So that's why we focus on universal things like safety, happiness, health, and ease. Because we can wish these for, for all life. And as we say them again and again with this whole range of, of beings, we start to realize that all beings want the same things. We all have the same basic wishes for ourselves. 
And you start to get a feeling that it's the same heart in each of us looking for the same outcomes. So in this way, we're deeply connected to each other. We all are looking for happiness in much the same ways. Then there's a third way that the Buddha said that we're deeply connected that we may not have been aware of before. One of the, one of the ideas in loving kindness that is, can become a boundless state or an immeasurable state, as the Buddha described it, and apply to anyone, to, to all beings. And so why should that be so? The Buddha said that he had a psychic power that let him see people's past, not only in this life, but in former lives. And he said from this vision, this special vision, he could see something about us that we don't know. And the way he put it was like this. As you look around the world, it is not easy to find a being who has not been at some time your mother or your father, or your brother, or your sister, or your son, or your daughter, at some time in the past. That's pretty unusual. Now, you may or may not believe in rebirth, but what if it was true? What if looking around the room, everyone here had been related to you in that way before? that intimately, that closely connected? What if the person sitting next to you had been your mother before? How would you feel about them? It might depend how you feel about your family of origin, (laughs) but it points to a level of connection that we normally don't think about and that might be the case might be the case. The Buddha was right about a lot of things. And that's how we can reflect on this passage in the Metta Sutta, which you're familiar with. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world. Just as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child is how we should care for one another. So there's another story that I like. Jack Cornfield, who was a founder both here and at Spirit Rock, has a daughter named Caroline who's uh, now in law school. She's studying at UC Berkeley and she wants to become a human rights lawyer uh, when she graduates. So she was driving from Berkeley back to Woodacre where uh, they live and um, came upon this stretch. It was a six-lane road near a little town of Larkspur where the ferry goes to San Francisco. And the traffic was jammed up way more than it should have been for this time of day. So she couldn't figure out quite what was going on, but as they got closer to the, you know, the traffic light, she started to see what was happening. Cars were stopping and moving really slowly. And then she noticed there was a duck trying to cross the road. Because somehow it had got on the opposite side of the road, but it wanted to get back to the bay. So this duck was hopping down and trying to cross the six lanes of traffic. And that's why the traffic was going so slowly. So Caroline, and and she had a friend in the car, got up to the front of that line, and they saw not only was there a duck, but she had six babies behind her. So Caroline stopped her car and got out, and her friend got out, and they just waved the traffic to a halt on all the the cars going their way. And so the mother could walk across to the divider and hopped up on the divider, and they thought, oh, that's good. But the little babies followed her, but they couldn't jump up on the divider. They were too small. So Caroline went out and gave each of them a little boost. So the mother and the six ducklings are all up on the divider. Not over. Then the mother jumps down on the other side to head to the bay, and then the traffic in the other direction starts backing up. And, you know, people are honking and leaning out of their windows and shouting, and what's the problem? Get it moving. What's happening? 
So they go and stop on the other side and stop those three lanes of traffic and just hold them up while they escort the duck and the six ducklings safely to the other side where then they have a straight shot to the bay. Just as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child. So I I just thought that was a beautiful gesture. I don't care if I'm going to hold up six lanes of traffic. I'm going to get the ducks across. That's metta in action. So this feeling of um, caring for others can, can become, it's said, really boundless. That it's not limited uh, who it can be extended to. And then you can, I want you to think into this a little bit because it's, it leads to another kind of beautiful quality. Suppose that we're able to develop this kind of boundless loving kindness and compassion. And we realize that for all sentient beings, we really don't want them to suffer. We want them to be happy. And we can generate this limitless love and compassion in our own hearts that feels authentic and feels genuine. We'll, we'll do that meditation um, in another week uh, in the loving kindness. So then, you know, the question arises, well, if you really want all those other sentient beings not to suffer, and to have the best kind of happiness, how can they do that? What's the best way for beings to come fully out of suffering and fully into real happiness? Well, as we've been talking about, the most authentic and the deepest kind of happiness is the happiness of awakening. So when we take metta and compassion to its logical consummation, It's the wish that all beings everywhere come to awakening. So then how can we best support that? Wishing is good, but is there another way that we could be more effective? And then we wonder, well, can I really help others to come out of suffering if I haven't come out of suffering myself? Or could I help others more fully to come out of suffering if I come out of suffering myself. So this inclination can become a motivation in practice as the most effective way to help other beings come completely out of unhappiness. I could come out of unhappiness first and then help them. So this has gotten a name in the Buddhist tradition This aspiration to awaken ourselves in order to help others awaken is called bodhicitta. And the literal meaning of bodhi is awakening, and citta is mind or heart. So a nice translation for this is the awakening heart. So we can see it as kind of the the logical conclusion of metta and compassion for all beings brought back as a motivation in our own practice. So I I mention this in case you like it as a motivation. It resonates for me. So at the start of every sitting, I make the aspiration, may I come to awakening in order to benefit sentient beings. Every time I start a sit, I'll remind myself that that's one of the reasons that I practice. So, this is a subtle thing. This is not like generally a big flame that takes over our motivation, but it can be a little candlelight that if you connect with it, you can bring in and it can get stronger. It's not easy to maintain this as a motivation. Doing this much work for the benefit of other people you know, it doesn't come so easily. But if we nurture it, it can be a motivation. Even the Dalai Lama says it's difficult. So if he says it's difficult, it's okay. He said, I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. 
Loving kindness through this sense of connection also expresses itself through our conduct. When we think about the precepts and the meaning of the precepts, we realize they really come out of a sense of loving kindness. We wish for others' happiness, so we don't want to harm them in any way. The Buddha said that as we develop the precepts, we're offering a gift to other beings, which is freedom from fear. And you can kind of feel that if you know someone who has really developed their conduct well, they create kind of an atmosphere of safety. And when people come into that field, the field of their presence, they feel safe. So this is that gift of of fearlessness. And this can be cultivated to a very high degree. The Dalai Lama was being interviewed by um, Oprah Winfrey a few years ago. And I have to say, I have a a great deal of appreciation for Oprah um, and her skillful editors because they have really brought teachings that help people to a very, very broad and popular audience through her television show, through her magazine, and now through her television network. Those of you who are from Europe may not know, but Oprah has established her own TV network in this country. It's called the Oprah Winfrey Network, and she describes it as mindful television. You've got to love it. Mindful television. So she has carried teachings from a lot of our friends out to this very wide audience, including James Barras, who appeared in O Magazine, Sharon, Jack, Joseph. Joseph did an article on non-attachment in relationship, and it earned him the nickname Dr. Love. <laughs> That was Joseph's contribution. So in this particular case, Oprah was interviewing the Dalai Lama uh, for an interview that got published in the magazine later. And she started off the interview by asking the Dalai Lama a question. Have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? Hmm, Small incidents like accidentally killing an insect, the Dalai Lama replied. Killing an insect, Oprah replied. Hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, My attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable. (laughs) Not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated. She fell silent and looked out the window. (laughs) You have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity... I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. Wow. That's impressive. But, you know, all that separates us is about 14 lifetimes of practice, so... And we'll, we can catch up. So this is beautiful, kind of his expression of the refinement of his meditation practice and the refinement of his conduct. You know, those two things really go hand in hand. You can't separate things like that. Because when the mind is free of greed, aversion, delusion, it's easier to be skillful in our conduct. And as we purify these forces, our conduct becomes cleaner and more purified also. They really go together. So loving kindness is a, is a foundation for sila, for conduct. It's also a foundation for dana, for generosity. It's really the source of generosity. In order for us to want to give, 
we have to tune into what someone else is going through and what they really need. There are many um, kind of discouraging signs in the world today. I mean, overall, globally, it feels like the darkest period I've ever been alive for. Um, but there are also some, some very positive signs happening in the world. And one of the things I'd like to point to is a recent book by Paul Hawken. He's sort of a New Age commentator and um, entrepreneur. I'll just read you the title of his book and say a little about it. His book is called Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came Into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. And what the book is about are all the um, individuals and small foundations around the globe who have taken a look at the massive amount of problems that are going on that no governments are dealing with and just said, I'm going to tackle that one. Very small groups, very committed to uh, social action, environmental action, social justice, maybe on a small scale, but people saying, I'm going to do what I can to make a difference. And taking their time, taking their energy, taking their money, taking their speaking skills and talents, and just rallying these forces to make a difference in the world. One group, one individual at a time. And he counted up, he made a catalog for this book. He counted up something like a million organizations worldwide on this rather small scale, each doing what they can. I think that's extraordinary. I don't think that was going on on that scale when I was a kid. I think that it's part of the movement of consciousness waking up that these things are happening all over the globe like this. And some of the ones, you know, I'm sure you've, you've heard of, um, Dr. Paul Farmer, who set up lots of health clinics in remote regions in Haiti. Greg Mortensen, who despite some uh, little financial uh, peccadilloes, has done great work with girls' schools in Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. And in our own immediate family, um, we have three friends who are doing work in Burma. And so I'll just mention that. Carol Wilson goes over every year, collects money from friends, takes over, adds, it's been growing, but tens of thousands of dollars to create um, uh, homes for nunneries, proper buildings and residences and bathrooms for nuns to be able to carry on their practice, and also providing um, food relief to families that were hit hard by natural disasters whom the government is basically ignoring. And then Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters have a project building schools in Burma. It's amazing, for $25,000 you can build a school in Burma. And if you build a school, the government will provide a teacher. They won't go to the trouble to building the school, but if you build it, they'll provide a teacher. So for the last several years, Steve has been going over with um, funds from donors, and usually building four to five schools every year for the last several years. And then another of our friends, um, Hal Nathan, the former board president of, of Spirit Rock, established a foundation he called Foundation for the People of Burma. And it was dedicated to health care and uh, sanitation improvements. Anywhere in Burma he could find a, a, a team to work with. And in the last year, I think he raised $6 million to take in and make a difference in Burma. These are all just springing out of individual initiatives of people who care, you know, who've committed incredible amounts of time and energy to make these kinds of things happen. So this is, it's an expression of people's love and compassion. It's an expression of wanting to make that difference in the world through this form of of generosity, but the root of it is this quality of caring, of tuning into what people need and how they're suffering and wanting to do what they can to address it. So this quality of the heart is really central. Alice Walker, the author of The Color Purple, put it this way, 
As I get older, I realize the thing that I value the most is good-heartedness. And that's what our metta practice generates in our compassion practice. This quality of good-heartedness and so much else flows from that. So then Trungpa Rinpoche continued this earlier quote about the sore spot on the body. He said, there's also an inner wound called Tathagatagarbha or Buddha nature. This is like a heart that has been sliced and bruised with wisdom and compassion. When the external wound and the internal wound begin to meet and to communicate, then we begin to realize that our whole being is made up out of one complete sore spot altogether. (laughs) This is called bodhisattva fever. That vulnerability is compassion. We really have no way to defend ourselves anymore. So this creates a beautiful sense of connectedness with life. And as it develops, it also creates a very strong quality in the heart that guards against a lot of, um, a lot of the hindrance energy in the mind. A few years ago, we were at a teacher meeting with the Dalai Lama. He came to Spirit Rock and was with us for about a day and a half. About 200 Buddhist teachers, both Western and Asian, got to spend time with him. The format of the first day's meeting, I don't think I would repeat, but what happened was different people would make presentations to him about different aspects of Western Buddhism. And generally, three people would present, maybe five or so, five to 10 minutes each, and then would ask for the Dalai Lama's comments after. And uh, it, was, it was quite uh, heartwarming to watch because sometimes he would have things to say. And other times, you know, these three presentations would go by, boom, boom, boom. And they'd ask the Dalai Lama for a response and he'd say, oh, nothing left up here. <laughs> he'd say, first person spoke, I had something to say. But then other people kept talking, now all gone. Ah. <laughs> and he just, he would just laugh about his own lack of memory. You know, he wasn't bothered. So he would, he would just be quiet. But one of the presentations was on the, the growing popularity of, of Buddhism in the West. And one of the presenters was a Westerner. I thought it was a little bit um, cheeky the way he put it. But I'll tell you what he said to to the Dalai Lama, about the popularity of of Buddhism in the West, you, your holiness, are the biggest popularizer of all of us. And this is leading to things like a perfume that's called samsara, and a resort that advertises, we'll carry you to nirvana the first day. (laughs) He said, your holiness, this popularization really risks trivializing the dharma. What do you think about this? The Dalai Lama was just quiet for a minute as he reflected on this. And then he replied, some people you see call me living Buddha. Others say I am God King, but I am not. I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. But then others call me counter-revolutionary. Or they say I'm a wolf in monk's clothing. But you see, I look back at my own intention. If my intention is sincere, then that is what is important. How others perceive me is up to them. I don't care. He said that very strongly. I don't care. And I thought that was fantastic. That he can get so much criticism leveled at him on such a big stage. He plays on a very big stage. And yet his heart has the strength not to be troubled by it. How others perceive me is up to them. If my intention is sincere, I don't care. He has the whole weight of the Tibetan country riding on his shoulders. And he still has this great equanimity and joy. What a heart. Or with anger. Loving kindness is a terrific, you could say, defense against anger. You know, I'm sure you know Aung San Suu Kyi was released from house arrest this year 
um, after being under house arrest for most of the last 17 years. And she talked about the role of loving kindness. And in fact, we know that a noted Burmese Sayadaw would visit her from time to time when she could receive visitors and gave her teachings on loving kindness. And she did a lot of loving kindness practice while she was in house arrest. And she said this about Metta. When I compared notes with my colleagues in the democracy movement in Burma who have suffered long terms of imprisonment, we found that an enhanced appreciation of metta was a common experience. We had known and felt both the effects of loving kindness and the unwholesomeness of nature's lacking in loving kindness. So it was something that was very important to her, and, and she did a lot of it. And when she came out of house arrest, she was asked if she would be willing to work with the military leaders or if she was angry at them. And she said, I'm not angry. I'm willing to sit down with them at any time and talk about the future for the benefit of the Burmese people. I am not angry. And I think only her strong practice of loving kindness could have held her through that, held her in that way. Martin Luther King said something really similar. He said, never succumb to the temptation of being bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instrument of love. And that quote reminded me of one of the great uh, Buddhist teachers of the last 50 years in Southeast Asia, was a teacher, Cambodian teacher named Mahagosananda. Mahagosananda grew up in Cambodia and ordained there, but for the middle part of his practice, he went to Thailand and practiced with Vipassana teachers um, in Thailand. And he happened to be there while the whole Khmer Rouge takeover happened. So during that uh, time of genocide, the Khmer Rouge uh, killed most of the monks and nuns and most of the intelligentsia. So um, Mahagosananda's entire family basically was killed. 16 out of 17 close relatives were killed by the Khmer Rouge. Then um, by 1980, the Khmer Rouge were being sidelined and people were starting to flee and come to refugee camps in Thailand along the Cambodian border. And when that started to happen, Mahagosananda went to live there in the refugee camps because there were very few teachers left. There were very few Buddhist teachers left in Cambodia to serve that population. So he went to live in the refugee camps and teach the Burmese, uh, Cambodian people the Dharma again because there hadn't been teaching of the Dharma for years in the country. So he would assemble people of a morning, and what he taught them was a chant. He saw that in order to repair his country, there was going to have to be a deep commitment from the people to reconciliation. And so what he had them chant again and again and again, all these villagers who had ended up in the refugee camps, was a chant from the Dhammapada, which says, Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. This is an ancient and eternal law. So he had pamphlets printed up that had this chant in Pali. And then he would get the people together and they would chant this. Well, some of the residents of the camps were still the Khmer Rouge because they didn't want to lose their control even over this part of the population. And they hated what Mahagosananda was doing because they knew that if he succeeded with reconciliation, they would lose all their power. The country would come back together and there would be no place for them. So there began to be threats against his life for doing these teachings. And his supporters became really concerned for him. And they told him that, look, if you go to Bangkok, we can get you a visa to Paris. You can fly to Paris and you'll be safe. Please take the money, get a plane ticket to Paris, and leave. We don't want you to be killed here in the camp. So they put him on a train to Bangkok, 
and gave him enough money to get an air ticket to Paris, and he took off. A week later, he shows up in camp again. They said, what are you doing here? He said, I couldn't leave my people. He said, well, what about, we gave you the money for a ticket to Paris. He said, oh, I had more pamphlets printed. So he had 10,000 more pamphlets to distribute saying hatred never ceases through hatred. Hatred only ceases through love. And Cambodia has done a lot of work in reconciliation since that time. When he returned, when the government got somewhat back together, he returned to the country and became the first, or the next patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He was a strong leader for for years. So this loving kindness makes the heart strong. It can withstand criticism. It can withstand anger. It can withstand fear. And it's a tremendously healing energy. This quality of love as it develops can heal a lot of our, our own hurts and injuries. This is a poem from uh, an Australian man named Michael Lunig. When the heart is cut, or cracked, or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. So loving kindness has this great healing energy and connects us through the uniting energy of care to all other beings, all other people. And we start to understand that we're not so different and we're not so separate, that we're actually put together in pretty much the same way. You know, when we look at our bodies, they're not that different. You know, there are minor variations, but we all have, you know, eyes and nose and tongue and ears, and heart and mind, belly. Our bodies are more or less the same. As we start to understand these, these kind of deep needs and wishes, safety, happiness, health, and ease, we realize that that's pretty much the same also. And you start to feel like there's really just one human heart that has been poured into different vessels and then gone through different experiences and gotten shaped in different ways. But it's fundamentally not any different between any of us. It responds kind of the same way in all of us. And so although a lot of our thoughts are about how we're different, We could also choose to reflect on all the ways that we're the same. We have kind of the same emotional package. We have the same physical body, more or less. And that's the deepest kind of connection, when we see that there's some underlying unity in this human experience. Despite all the distinctions, there's some way that we're all alike. cuts through the sense of separation. This is a poem from um, Rumi's teacher, Shams of Tabriz. I, you, he, she, we, in the garden of mystic lovers, these are not true distinctions. And in the garden of loving kindness, these are not true distinctions either. We see an underlying unity despite the apparent differences. So I just want to close with the way um, Oprah concluded her interview with the Dalai Lama. And before I read it, um, I just want to mention that in our tradition, metta is the primary of the Brahma Viharas, and it's the one that we emphasize. In the Tibetan tradition, compassion is seen as the primary one of the four immeasurables. Um, So that's the one they emphasize. But love and compassion are not very different. 
So what the Dalai Lama says of compassion, we would equally say about love. This is a conclusion of the discussion between Oprah and His Holiness. In my magazine, I do a column called What I Know for Sure. So what do you know for sure? The one thing of which you have no doubt. The Dalai Lama did not hesitate. Compassion is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. There is no doubt. So let's just sit for a minute, please. Compassion is the best source of happiness for happy life and happy world. There is no doubt. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.